Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. At the circus, the strong man who was there to perform great feats of strength, the strong man held out a challenge to the crowd that had gathered before him. And the strong man produced a lemon. He produced a lemon and he cut it in half. And he took the lemon and he squeezed it with all of his strong man strength. And you could see the lemon juice pouring out of this half of a lemon into a little cup. And he squeezed and it was all this juice coming out and he held up the leftover rind of the lemon and he says, I have a challenge. I will offer anybody $200 if they can come up and squeeze one more drop of juice out of this lemon. And the crowd was silent. They knew they were beat. They knew it was a losing challenge except for a small, thin, proper looking grandmother in white gloves. She came forward and said, I would like to accept the challenge. The strong man laughed with derision, of course, but no others came forward, and so he welcomed her onto the stage, and the grandmother picked up this half of a lemon, and with all of her might and with all of her strength and her wiry grandmother frame, she squeezed the lemon. And beyond all guessing, to the amazement of the crowd and to the strong man, one single drop of lemon came out and dropped into the cup. One drop of lemon juice, that's all it took. And the strong man was so amazed, No man had ever beaten him at this challenge. He said to the woman, what's the secret of your strength? And she said, practice. I was a church treasurer for 32 years. (laughs) Terrible, terrible, I know. Um, But the the thing is our reading today from our series in Genesis has to do with money. So I gotta butter you up a little bit because whenever the pastor starts talking about some money stuff, um, people reach for their holsters, right? Um, I don't think you'll need to today, maybe another day, but not today. Um, and uh, it's always good to butter up and lighten the mood when we talk about money. Um, Epiphany as a church is fine, don't worry. We had a vestry meeting recently, whatever the numbers, everything's fine. It's just that by nature of the reading we are in, in our series in Genesis today, uh, we get to talk about money. Our reading today features a remarkable first in the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. It's the story of the first ever recorded tithe, a gift of 10% of a certain sum, which Abram offers to a clergy person in this reading. So we're not finger-wagging, no dour financial news. Um, We're going to talk about this reading, the the, the context uh, in which the first tithe is given, and see if we can't find something in there that's not just sort of an ethical way of managing your money. Uh, Plenty of people can tell you those things. But I do want to ask the question if there's any good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ to be found in this passage. Um, We are in our sermon series, after all, we're calling it the gospel according to Genesis. And we're looking at these passages from the Old Testament to see how they prefigure, how they promise, how they look ahead uh, to the same gospel that we read in the gospels. Um, We're looking to see if the back of the Bible and the front of the Bible match up. That's what we're doing in our sermon series. 
And to understand our reading, I'll give you uh, some catch-up. We're going to go through and look a little bit back at some of the readings that we have done before. To catch you up, a few Bible chapters back, God had made Abram a promise. God makes this guy Abram a promise. He says this, I'm going to bless the heck out of you if you leave your family and follow me to a new land that you've never been to before, and I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to bless you until uh, it just runs out of your ears, right? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your friends. I'm going to curse your enemies. Your name is going to be great. And I'm going to make you, individual Abram, into a great nation, a large nation that you will no longer be a family anymore. You're going to have to elect a government to watch over all the ends because you're a big family. That's what your offspring are going to look like. And so God um, makes this promise to Abram, and Abram says, okay. He leaves behind the security of his extended family. He leaves behind his um, ancient Near East equivalent of his retirement fund, his 401k at age 75. He leaves his stable life in modern-day Turkey, and he ventures south. He follows God. God, uh, He takes God up on his promise. This isn't to say that Abram's a good guy by any stretch. He's not morally upstanding. In fact, he's kind of a scoundrel, okay, right? Um, He follows God into the land of Canaan, and God says that this choice piece of real estate that you're in right now, um, this is where we're going to work on your promises. This is the geographical area I'm going to give you. But at the first sign of famine, Abram bolts. He travels even further south to Egypt, where he goes through this whole ordeal where he pimps out his wife to the Pharaoh. Um, there's a lot there. You can listen to that sermon on the church website. We talked about that two weeks ago. The whole time that Abram is traveling around, though, as he travels from Turkey to what we now call Israel down to Egypt and then back up to the land of Israel, while he's traveling all throughout this region, we find that he doesn't just travel alone. He has a traveling companion, his nephew, a man named Lot. Among the many moral failures, among the many spiritual failures of Abram that we read in our Genesis reading, is that God asked Abram to leave behind all of his extended family, all of his security network to follow him. And Abram listened like 80% of the way, which is basically the same thing as saying Abram didn't listen. Because he brought along his nephew, Lot. Why does Abram bring his nephew, Lot, along? What is the purpose of bringing along his nephew? Lot, you see, had been being groomed as Abram's heir. Part of the promise of God is God says to Abram, listen, you don't have any kids right now. That's a big deal, but I'm going to give you so many kids that you're going to have to make a nation out of it. And Abram says, okay, and he follows God, but he brings along his nephew Lot. Lot's father had died some time ago, and so Abram had brought him along to say, okay, well, if this whole thing with God doesn't work out, if I don't get an heir... If I don't actually have a biological child with my wife, as God had promised, um, I've got someone in the wings. I've got a backup plan. His name is Lot. And he's going to be the inheritor of my entire estate. Sort of like a functional adoption of sorts. But God, you see, has entered the scene, and God promises Abraham a a biological child. And so for Abraham to keep Lot around, to keep traveling with him, to keep Lot at his side, to keep grooming him to be his heir, it shows, it's evidence that Abram really doesn't trust God. God promises a child, and Abram says, sure, a kiddo would be nice, but I'm going to keep Lot around just in case. 
Last week, the Reverend Karen Stevenson was here. She filled the pulpit. The reading was from Genesis 13. And what we see in the previous chapter to our reading today is that Abram and Lot do split up. They go their separate ways. At this point, after years of working together in the family business, as it were, Lot and Abram had both grown really wealthy. Wealth back then wasn't necessarily bank accounts. It was like, how many cows and sheep do you have? And they both had so many cows and sheep and people to watch them and herdsmen and such. They had so many people um, that their, their shepherds, their livestock herdsmen were fighting um, over the good land. They were fighting because the animals were getting mixed up. It was just too much. So Abram says to Lot, hey, Lot, let's let's part ways. You go whatever direction you want to go, and I'll go the opposite so that our people don't fight. And Lot says, okay, no problem. And Lot heads uh, geographically east. He heads east uh, to uh, over across the Jordan River to a land called Sodom. More about Sodom later. But that is the big shift that happens in Genesis 13. So we go from Abram leaving everything behind except for his nephew. Uh, to Abram finally saying, okay, time to sort of part ways here. And um, God reiterates his promise after they part ways. God says to Abram, good, right? All the promises are going to come true. I I I guarantee you that. Uh, Even though your backup plan is now way far away and he's not in the picture anymore, you've done a good thing. It's all going to work out. It's a far cry from that to our reading today in Genesis chapter 14. What happens? Where do we go from Abram and Lot parting ways to a, uh, a war council about dividing up the spoils of war? Here's what happens. Some scholars call it, in Genesis, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, the War of the Nine Kings. Sounds like uh, something out of Lord of the Rings a little bit, right? The, the War of the Nine Kings. A bunch of kings from the east in places we now call Iraq and Iran, led by a guy named uh, King Chedorlaomer. Um, who I'm just going to call King Cheddar because his name is just so long and obnoxious. So King Cheddar uh, comes in uh, and he invades the region uh, that Abram is living. He doesn't invade Abram's space, but he invades all around it. And he, he and his army come in and they capture. It's the first war that we read about in the entire Bible. And so everyone's fighting and the, the kings are fighting and there's armies and people are running. And King Cheddar is beaten up on everyone, basically. And one of the kingdoms he conquers is the nation called Sodom. After the the conquer of Sodom, uh, one of the the, the people from Sodom, one of the the, the citizens, flees. They get away. They are not captured and put into slavery like the rest of Sodom. And they go across the river and they find Abram and say, Abram, I got bad news. Your nephew, the guy who you were training to be your heir but let go, um, King Cheddar came and, and conquered that area. Your nephew, he's lost everything. And if you don't do something, he's going to end up being taken back um, to, the, uh, to the home nation as somebody else's slave. And this is a real test for Abram, in fact. It's a big um, a test for him because how much is he going to try to go get Lot back is the question. Is he going to try to get Lot back? Because up until that point, you know, sort of Lot was under Abram's care, but now Lot's gone, and so Lot's you know, gotten invaded, and Abram's like, what am I going to do? And so what he does is he calls up some allies, and um, he tracks down uh, King Cheddar's army. He splits up his forces and raids the camps at night. And he, um, as the King James famously says, um, he smote them. Uh, There was smiting going on. Abram and his allies slaughter King Cheddar and his army at night. 
They free all the slaves. Um, they rout the army. It goes back to sort of Iran, Iraq. And um, he rescues Lot. He does. Um, it's the one story we have in the scripture of Abram actually taking up arms and kind of being a general and leading an army. And he, uh, he goes about smiting. So, you know, um, don't mess with Abram is the moral of that story. And at this point in our reading in Genesis 14, I know it's a lot of context, but after the war, uh, the kings of the region gather to parley, the, the victorious kings. Um, they, right in the Valley of the Kings is what it says in our reading. And Abram is there, and he's got all the goods he won in the victory. And his allies are there too. And then the king of Sodom is there, right? He was defeated, but he's at the table. And there's also this guy who is named Melchizedek, who is the king of Salem. Um, you may be familiar with Salem by its more uh, familiar name, um, because what will happen is that city, the king of uh, Salem, will turn into a city called uh, Jerusalem, which will then be translated into Jerusalem. Um, and so years before Jerusalem becomes the capital of Israel and the city of David, um, the king of that city, a guy named from Melchizedek, he comes to the table too. What does he bring with him? He brings bread, he brings wine, and he brings it there for everyone to enjoy. And all these kings come together and they say, thank you, Abram, for kicking out King Cheddar and saving our people and uh, freeing our region um, from the tyranny of this bad king. And Melchizedek, he's not just there as a king, but the text tells us he is also a priest of the Most High God. He is both a king and priest. He is clergy. And so what does he do? He pronounces this blessing on Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So it turns out, by sort of mystical, spiritual happenstance, Abram's God, the one God, the creator God, isn't just working in Abram, y'all. He's also been working with the king of Salem. He, the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek and Abram, worship the same God. And so what happens is, is this impromptu worship service breaks out at the king's council where everyone's just thanking the most high God because of the military victory. Um, Abram's friends around the table, his allies, they're all getting blessed. They're all cashing in on God's blessing, right? What was one of God's blessings that he promised to Abraham? Anybody who is your friend will be blessed too. So we're seeing that come together at this great king's council held in the valley of the kings. And it's in this context, it's in this context that Abram does something remarkable, right? The king of Salem, Melchizedek, he isn't part of the original war expedition. Um, but Abram gives him 10% of the spoils of war anyway. Did you catch that? He gives of all the, the spoils of war, all the, the sort of livestock and money and food that they stole and they plundered from the... The, the invading army, all of the spoils of war, he takes 10% off the top and gives it to Melchizedek. He does that because Melchizedek is sort of the stand-in. Um, like, you know, everything belongs to God, right? Um, everything belongs to God. Uh, what does the blessing say, right? He's the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. It's all his anyway. But as an act of worship and as an act of thanks, um, God takes, uh, ten, or Abram takes 10% off the top and says, here's 10% of, uh, just to show my gratitude, just to say thank you, God, right? 10% off the top. And it's a reflection of Abram's faith because he wants to worship God by giving away this portion of what he wins. 
Now, around the table, there are, again, six people. There's Abram, his three allies. Um, there's also Melchizedek, that's five. And then there's this other guy, the king of Sodom. What's the king of Sodom doing at the table? What's he doing at the parlay? What's he doing in the valley of the kings? One of the points of this passage here as a reader is that the, the, the book of Genesis wants you to get to know the king of Sodom. And by proxy, this part of Genesis wants you to have an insight into the people of Sodom. Um, because the king of Sodom, you see, has been beaten in this original invasion. He is, by every account, a total loser. And while Mel Melchizedek and Abram and their friends have this sort of impromptu church service with blessings, and they start to give away um, the, the, the things that they've won and devote it to God, and then they're having bread and wine, right? That sounds like church to me. And um, the king of Sodom in the middle of this starts to get anxious, and he starts to get, get a little angry, and he says this, Thanks for freeing my people. I don't care about the money or stuff, but give me back my people, read slaves. Um, he wants his servants back. He wants his people back. Keep the stuff, he says, but I need my servants. The loser king, who has no right to anything because he is a loser, because he lost, he sidles up to the table, he ponies up to the table and says, give me back that which is rightfully mine. And it's this mix of arrogance and impropriety and cluelessness. He did nothing to win this war. He did nothing to help out. In fact, he lost. He has nothing. And yet he comes to the table and tries to get something out of these people. You know the phrase, um, to the victor go to the spoils, right? He is not the victor. He gets no spoils. But he comes to the table anyway. And we're here to see um, that, that this man, this king of Sodom, is entitled and he is not a good guy. And Abram reads the room, and he, and he figures that out quickly enough, and he says to the king of Sodom, no way, I'm not going to take anything of yours, take your money, take your people, and go. Because you're going to start spreading rumors about me, and you're going to tell people falsehoods about me, and I'm going to give you absolutely zero excuse to say anything negative about me. So just take it all, take all your old stuff and get out of here, um, because I don't want to deal with you. That's what Abram says. And, and you'll remember at one point in the New Testament, Jesus and his disciples, he tells his disciples that if they go to a town and say, hey, Jesus is coming, and the town says, ah, oh, we don't want Jesus, uh, he tells the disciples to wipe the dust off of their feet when they leave the town. Because he's like, I don't want anything to do with you because you're so completely clueless. That's what's happening here between Abram and the king of Sodom. That is what the back and forth represents. Abram says, forget it. I want nothing to do with you. And he gives him money, and he gives him his people, and says, get out of here. Sodom, um, given the actions of their king, what, what we're foreshadowing here, and what we're reading in our notes, and sort of what's been, what we are to know, is that of all the people in this region, uh, Sodom, in particular, um, is run by a terrible, terrible king, and it's filled with terrible, terrible people. And the only thing redemptive about this nation called Sodom is that uh, Lot lives nearby, Abram's nephew. And we're going to keep talking for the next couple of chapters here about this, the embodiment of all that is bad in the world as it is represented by Sodom. And um, I know Sodom has this uh, connotation for um, a particular type of, of sin, as it were, but i got to tell you, the real story behind Sodom as we go through it, um, it's much, much worse than you imagine. The, the things that Sodom is known for and what they do is terrible. And Abram is like, I wouldn't even deal with you people if it weren't for my nephew.
I wouldn't even do, I, I wouldn't care one bit for one for my nephew. So what we're seeing in our reading today, Abram interacting with two different kings, a righteous king and an unrighteous king. What we're seeing today is Abram interact with two kings of opposing uh, virtues. And we're meant to learn something from that, right? Because the first king, who we might call Abram's friend, Abram gives him 10% off the top. He doesn't have to give him 10%. It's not like God has asked for 10% or God's commanded 10%, but he gives it anyway. And it's a reflection of Abram's faithful heart. He's like, look, I, I want to thank God for my victory, I want to thank God for, for, for giving me a deliverance from this king who was terrorizing our region. I want to thank God because I was able to rescue my nephew. Um, and so he gives 10% off the top. He just gives it away. He says, I'm so grateful for what God has done. I'm going to give 10% away um, just out of thanksgiving and gratitude. The second king, if the first king is Abram's friend, the second king is Abram's enemy. We might call him an enemy. Abram gives generously to him, too. He doesn't have to. It's not fair or just, but who cares? Abram does what he wants. And I'm reminded of Jesus' teaching later on in the New Testament when, and when Jesus says that when an enemy sues you for your cloak, give him your tunic, too. And that's a story about how if, if, if someone comes to you in Jesus' time and they say, that cloak is, I'm going to sue you, you did me wrong, and, and the only way you can pay for it is with your clothes, Jesus says, don't just give him your, your coat. Um, give him your shirt and pants too, right? It is better for you to sort of embarrass them by walking around half naked um, with only your linen undergarments to show, um, to shame them because they're taking advantage of you. And that's what's happening in this reading, um, that Abram is, is, is shaming this king by giving, away, uh, giving him the, the spoils of what he doesn't earn. Um, we see how the king of Sodom is wrong and how Abram is gracious to a man who doesn't deserve it. That's what we see in our reading. And to look at this reading, it's, it's almost as if Abram really doesn't care about the money from the spoils of his war. And that's where I'm going to want to land things uh, this morning. Abram gives generously to God. Abram gives generally to his enemy, generously to his enemy. Abram just gives generously. And it's a credit to his faith that, um, it's a credit to his faith in God that he doesn't look to his money for security. He just gives it away. So uh, three quick notes in conclusion, and we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, I want to clarify a misconception first that, about Christians and tithing. Um, tithing is a pattern that we see in Genesis chapter 14, um, but tithing later in the Old Testament functions as a tax for people who live in ancient Israel. And so we are not servants of the geopolitical nation of ancient Israel, and so it's not as if the tithe is this hard and fast law that Christians must follow. People get really nervous when I say that, by the way. I was asked to write a letter about tithing for a church newsletter at a church where I was interning at. And um, I, I wrote this. I said, you know, part of what, what, you know, you look at the history of the tithe, Christians aren't supposed to tithe. They don't have to tithe. That's not what the New Testament says. And um, I wrote this for the church newsletter, and funny enough, they didn't publish it. I mean, who knew, right? <laughs> And, um, and, and, and if that makes you nervous when I say that, then what I'm going to say next is going to make you even more nervous. Because in the New Testament, after Jesus' death and resurrection, we see this new pattern start to emerge. Because God doesn't ask for 10%, he asks for 100%. He asks for everything. He wants all of it. 
And there's not a single penny we discover in the New Testament that isn't a gift from God. God owns it all, and so um, God wants us to do his will with our money. And so when Paul writes in the book of Romans um, that we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, what God says in essence is this. He says, um, look, it's not like you can give 10% to God and the rest you can do whatever you want with. It's that all of this, every single... um, a penny in your bank account belongs to God. And your job as the Christian is not to um, sort of sit there and say, this is God, this is mine. It's to say, how, God, would you like me to spend your money today? Um, Thy will be done is the prayer that we ask over our money, not just 10%, but all of it. Second thing we see in our reading. Um, The pattern that we see in uh, Abram this morning is that faith in God and generosity go hand in hand. If you want to see a good metric of your faith, take a look at your checkbook and see how much of your money you've given away in Jesus' name. I mean, that's condemning to me too. So, you know, if that makes you uncomfortable, you know, I don't tell you anything to make you uncomfortable that doesn't make me uncomfortable as well. But to put it in perspective, um, as the church grew in the book of Acts in the New Testament, um, people were selling their houses and giving the money to the church. They were selling their homes, and they said, look, we don't need this home. We're going to sell it, and we're going to give the proceeds to the ministry of the Christian gospel because we think that's the most important thing. And we trust God so much to take care of our daily needs that we're just going to give as much as we can away. And you know what? We can give away our house. And I'm not telling you to give away your house. Don't go home and tell people, Pastor Brian said, sell your house. But I am saying that what we see in Abram, what we see in the New Testament, is that the free release of money for the sake of the gospel is linked to a vibrant and godly faith. Third thing, I do want to commend to you nonetheless, even though we are not required to tithe, I do want to commend to you the act of worship um, that is the tithe. That what tithing as we see it in this context is, tithing is an act of worship. It's like bread and wine, blessings from God, and giving money away. Like, that's all linked together. It almost sounds like a church service that we do, right? Bread and wine, it's right there. Um, You know, uh, blessings, you know, I'm I'm reading the word of God. Um, And, um, well, there's an offering plate in the back. It's it's all here. It's all part of our worship together. And I want to tell you the story about my own life, tell you a personal story, and this will be the end of our time together. And this is a confession about my own reluctance to tithe and how my life changed when I did. Um, When Beth and I got married, we moved to Morgantown in the year 2012. And as many of you know, that was a season where Beth and I were working on a church plant, a mission to start a new church where there there wasn't one. And um, many of you know the church plant didn't stick. It was a three-year mission. And during that time, I didn't receive a paycheck from the church uh, for that mission. It was something I worked on part-time. I didn't receive a payment from it. And um, I, I did have a paycheck, however, coming in for my bivocational day job. I worked at West Virginia University, both Beth and I did at the time. And uh, we could have tithed to our church plant, but um, frankly, we were strapped for cash. Our student loan payments had kicked in. Um, we were young, we were right out of school. Um, rent in Morgantown is surprisingly high. And at one point during our early marriage, uh, our bank account balance was like less than $20. It's like, where, where are we going to find money to take 10% when everything is going out the door before we even can go, like, you know, uh, eat out? 
There was no, uh, there was no wiggle room in those early days. That's what we told ourselves. Um, and that we said what we're going to do instead is we're going to give of our time. We're going we're to donate our time and we're going to donate our talent to the church. We're going we're to have, instead of giving um, money, we're just going to give our time and our talent. We did that for three years. Well, in 2015, after the church plant mission concluded, Beth and I were still in a, kind of a tough place. We were taking a church, uh, few months off of church because our spirits were wrecked. And we were taking stock of our financial situation. And we decided since we weren't involved in a church at this moment, if we weren't involved in a Christian ministry, we were taking some time to lick our wounds. Um, well, we couldn't use the, the, the talent and time piece as an excuse anymore that we, if we weren't involved with the church and giving, we needed to give financially. And uh, we need to embrace this 10% thing. And this was January of 2016. So that month was the month we said, okay, let's try to find the money in the budget to start giving away um, in God's name. And we did. And that same month, my boss at WVU called me into the office. And that was the year overtime rules were changing and shifting. And as a result, they needed to move me into a different income bracket so they wouldn't have to pay me overtime. And as a result, I got a 30% raise, which was massive. And then on top of that, that same month, um, a, a position opened up in Beth's department, and she applied for it, and she got the new position, and she had a 15% increase in her own salary. Um, that the, the, the day we started tithing, the month we started tithing, our family income went up something like 20 to 30%. It was just incredible. And um, I tell you that story, um, A, because I, you know, I want to tell you about God's faithfulness in the middle of it and, and how Beth and I experienced it. Um, but, but it changed our relationship with God because we could see God's fingerprints. You know, we, of course, we knew God worked in our, our works to do healing and redemptive work in our spirits and in our relationships and in our psyche in these existential ways. But this was a practical, material, financial way in which we saw God provide for us in a way that we, we just hadn't seen it before. And so we could see the fingerprints of God doing a saving and redeeming work in this part of our life. And I, I, I almost hesitate to tell you this story because it sounds so like health and wealth gospel. And I wish I could tell you here that if you worshiped God with your money, you would get more money. It doesn't always work out like that. But the reality is, is I'm not the only person who tells that story. Um, I've heard it from dozens of other Christians in my own orbit, that the moment they started to turn over their financial life to God and to say, I want to worship God with my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, and my wallet, the moment that that happened, they'll tell you that something similar happened to them. They got the unexpected promotion. Um, they got the unexpected inheritance. They got the unexpected uh, boost to their financial situation. And so for all of us in that boat, for those of us who do embrace this sort of 10% pattern, we don't do it because we're in it for the quid pro quo blessing. We're not trying to buy God's attention or pardon. But like Abram, we are people to whom God has made a promise. Abram was promised blessing and children and renown. We, friends, are promised the forgiveness of sins, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and eternal life. Abram was promised protection from his enemies. We are promised the defeat of our enemies, sin, death, Satan himself. God promised Abram that his descendants would bless every nation. And we, friends, believe it or not, are the recipient of that blessing. That because we are involved with the same God who called Abraham out of Turkey and said, come and follow me and I will bless you, 
We are doing the same thing, and as a result, we are getting what was promised to Abraham, that you and I are recipients of the blessing made thousands of years ago. And so when the Creator God has promised you the total forgiveness of your sins, unconditional companionship, the defeat of death, the resurrection of your body, your daily bread, everything you need to survive, and when the Creator God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to seal that promise in blood and wood for the universe to witness. And when that son returns to life three days later and says it's all true, every word of it, money's just not that important. Money's not that important. Give it away to your friends. Give it away to your enemies. Give it to the direct service of God. Um, The plate we set out in the back of the sanctuary every week isn't just about programs or budgets or the like. We set out that plate so that every Sunday you have the opportunity to worship God with your mind, your body, your soul, your strength, and your wallet. And we uh, can give everything we are to God, even our financial life. Um, Abram's faith in our reading today, friends, it manifests itself in generosity in the same way that God's love for us manifests itself in generosity. To give away money in Jesus' name is to reflect on the generosity of God giving his son for us. Again, Epiphany is fine as an organization. We're not in a place of financial need or difficulty. But as we worship together today, um, we do so with cups and bread and wine. Um, we do so with sermons and prayers and kneeling. And we, um, I, I simply ask you this morning um, not to neglect the, ple- the plate, the offering plate, as a place of your worship as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel it. Oh, I got the feeling. When I woke, I feel it Ow! in my soul. You know Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.